Welcome to Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. Adrian Fries and Trey Bailey invite you to join them on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as we participate in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. Our guest today is Dr. Gary Hartenberg, joining us to discuss his new book on Aristotelian education. Before we start the show, I wanted you to know about our monthly bonus podcast, exclusive for our Patreon supporters. This month, I interviewed Dr. Hartenberg and asked him to come back after today's episode and discuss Aristotle's view on friendship and happiness. That recording is available now if you support us on Patreon. In addition to exclusive access to bonus episodes, our great conversation partners are invited to join us for a live interactive discussion each month. This month, we will meet on Tuesday, May 10th, between 7 and 9 p.m. Central Time. You'll be provided a Zoom link, and this month's topic will be on conducting good classroom seminars. And we will dive into a reading and a seminar with our live attendees, and we hope you'll join us for this live event. But if you can't, the video will be available to all of our Patreon members. Visit patreon.com forward slash classical education so you can immerse yourself in a classical education experience. You can also visit our website, classicaleducationpodcast.com, and there's a link to our Patreon page so you can join from there. Today, Trey and I are delighted to have Dr. Gary Hartenberg here. He holds a BA in Bible and Theology from Moody Bible Institute an MA in Philosophy of Religion and Ethics from Biola University, and a PhD in Philosophy from the University of California. He is an Associate Professor of Philosophy at Houston Baptist University, where he also serves as the Director of HBU Honors College, a liberal arts program for undergraduates to read, discuss, and write about great works of Western civilization, and he resides with his family in Houston, Texas. Welcome to the program, Gary. Thanks very much, Adrian. I uh, appreciate you having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Well, we were delighted to receive a copy of your newest book uh, put out by Classical Academic Press called Aristotle, Education for Virtue and Leisure. It's part of the Giants in History of Education series, which I love this series. I've read several books from this series, and I really appreciate uh, this publication. And so um, tell us a little bit about this project and um, then we'll kind of dive into the depths of the questions that we have. Okay, yeah. So uh, I guess it started maybe five years or so ago. Uh, I met um, David Diener through a colleague at HBU. Actually, our, your listeners probably know Lou Marcos. Um, mm-hmm. So Lou's a colleague of mine uh, at HBU, and he had written a book on C.S. Lewis and education for this series. So um so I saw uh, um, that they uh, hadn't done one for Aristotle yet. So so Lou put me in touch with the editor, uh, David, and um, uh, he said, yeah, we'd be glad to have you write uh, a volume on Aristotle. So um, I did it a little bit at a time, uh, and uh, David was very patient. The folks at the press were very patient. Um, and 
yeah, it, it sort of grew and kept growing, and they were also very accommodating. I think my my book on Aristotle is maybe twice as long as some of the other books in this series. So they were very generous, uh, also with their with their paper that they printed it on. So um, so I was happy uh, about that. And then at the end, I thought uh, it turned out to be a, a pretty good survey of, of Aristotle's view of uh, education, of his philosophy of education. Uh, and I certainly uh, learned uh, a lot of good things along the way. Um, I had done work previously on Aristotle's ethics um, and a bit on his politics, but had never really dived uh, right into his uh, philosophy of education. Uh, so this is a good opportunity for me as well uh, to learn about, uh, you know, I guess uh, Aristotle, I say in the book, um, probably the, the second best philosopher of all time. Uh, behind his his teacher, right? So um, Plato, um, and then sometimes Plato is considered to be the second best to his teacher, Socrates. So it's pretty amazing that you get three just incredible philosophers, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, all within 150 years of each other in the same uh, location. Um, yeah, that uh, I doubt that that's ever happened before or uh, happened since even. Yeah, well, one of the um, reasons I wanted to have you on to discuss the book has to do with our podcast goals. And one of these goals is to inspire educators and parents that an education done well can influence their children towards choosing a life of virtue. Your book has a theme of helping the reader understand how leisure plays into virtue. Can you help our listeners, especially those who are new to classical ed, understand what leisure is and how it influences virtue. Yeah, so uh, stop me when I get to like hour six in my answer <laughs> to this question. Uh, right. It's, it's uh, pretty involved, um, but I think the basic idea, uh, and you see this in the book I guess I'll reference the most, and that I'd encourage all of your readers to pick up a copy if they don't have one, uh, is Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. Uh, this is where he lays out uh, his main account of virtue, anyway, uh, and talks about leisure as well. So the basic idea is that leisure uh, is more or less being happy. Um, and so the way to be happy, uh, if you suppose you find yourself with just a lot of spare time on your hands, um, either in a particular situation or maybe just as a, as a way of life, uh, you, you have uh, time on your hands. Uh, and Aristotle's question is, how are you going to spend that time? And not just how are you going to spend it, but are you going to be the kind of person who is ready to spend that time well? Uh, so I think we often imagine or assume that uh, well, if I get a week off here or there, then I'll just spend that how I like, and that's the best way to spend my time. And Aristotle would really ask you to pump the brakes on that and say, if you have a week off, are you the kind of person in your character and in your mind and in your intellect, as he would call it, but are you the kind of person who's ready and able to spend that time off well? Uh, because, you know, a lot of us, if we have a, a week off, we're just like, well, we catch up on our sleep uh, or we just kind of eat whatever we want and uh, watch whatever we want. Maybe we pick up a book or two if we're sort of nerdy intellectuals or something like that, or, or we go on vacation or do something like that. But for Aristotle, 
those choices aren't all equal. Um, so uh, you really have to be the right kind of person in your character and in your intellect uh, in order to uh, use your leisure time well. And I guess if there's a main point of my book and a main point of Aristotle's philosophy of education, it's that education should be designed in order to make students uh, as much as possible ready and able to use their leisure time well. Um, now, in his mind, that's going to mean uh, probably, uh, and I talk about this in the book, probably doing a lot of philosophy. Now, that, that term might be off-putting to people, right, because we have ideas about what philosophers are like, right? They can't tie their shoes. They can't, you know, do this or that. Um, that's not what Aristotle means by philosopher. Um, so the philosopher is the wise person, uh, the one who is, uh, you know, skilled in, in lots of different things, but really prioritizes above all a kind of philosophical, even we might even say a kind of theological contemplation. Um, so that's, that's probably the highest and best way that Aristotle thinks people ought to use their leisure time. Though uh, he also allows, and in the book I point out, well, there's maybe, he's not always clear about this, but he has a real fondness for music as well. Um, and so he thinks that listening to good music uh, is also a, a really good way to, to spend one's leisure time. And, you know, not everyone uh, is capable of doing that. Right? It's not just a matter of sitting down and pushing play and kind of enjoying it for half an hour, but to really appreciate it, to really understand it, um, takes a, a good deal of education in itself. Um, now, I think, you know, before uh, the listeners just kind of push stop and, and <laughs> don't go on anymore with Aristotle, right? He, he would, I think, uh, it would be in the spirit of that to say that anything you do, that you do for its own sake, and that is has a value to it. Um, uh, that that would be a kind of examples of leisure or, or leisure activities. Um, now these could be sort of more or less just um, how do you say kind of intellectual things. So I think of examples like playing chess. Uh, I think Aristotle would be okay if you spent your leisure time playing chess, right? Um, uh, but also other things involving uh, some sorts of physical activities. You know, I, I don't garden. Uh, I don't really like gardening. But uh, from what I understand of people who do and who really enjoy it, it does or can have that contemplative quality uh, to it that I think Aristotle would, for the most part, be okay with. Um, so the idea that you need to be a certain sort of person uh, in order to enjoy your leisure time, uh, in order to be happy, that I think is really at the heart of uh, Aristotle's ethics. And then where the virtues come in is working on each of the virtues. Um, and according to Aristotle, there are four main ones, right? Uh, courage, uh, moderation, justice, and wisdom, or uh, phronesis is the Greek term. Um, uh, but if you get those four main uh, virtues, uh, then you are, are pretty well set up to have a good character and to have a good intellect. Yeah, I 
one of the things that um, I noticed that was a golden thread in the book, I'd like to get to come into the discussion of phronesis, the, the Greek you said for wisdom. So he said. Uh, yeah, so one of the things about Greek, uh, about Aristotle in particular, uh, is that he's got lots of different words or terminology mm -hmm. at his disposal. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, phronesis um, is, uh, the he says it's the wisdom related to making the right sort of choices. Um, so it's very practical. Uh, some pe some translators translate it as practical judgment mm -hmm. or practical wisdom uh, is a common translation of phronesis. It is a bit of a contrast with uh, the Greek word, at least as Aristotle uses it, Sophia, which uh, your listeners are probably familiar with. Um, and Sophia for Aristotle is kind of this high, almost highfalutin kind of technical uh, uh, intellectual contemplation. Um, it's it's uh, theoretical in a sense, in a way that phronesis is very practical, very down to earth. It's what guides our decisions and our and our our choices. Right, and one of the things I noticed is you kind of kept unfolding or weaving the whole book with the thread of phronesis throughout the whole book. It was very interesting. Um, and what I'd like to hear a little more about it is how how it really undergirds um, an Aristotelian education. I, I really like the concept because it seems to me that it frees the teacher and the parent from drilling, you know, virtue of the month curriculum. Um, it seems to me that Phronesis is formed through like a musical education in the sense of the music of the Republic by Plato. Yet I see very few... Um, classical schools actually doing this. Um, I see phrenesis as very opposite of the idea of education being useful. Um, it's, it centers around the idea that education is part of like all living at home during formal studies, both, you know, kind of encompasses everything. Can you expand a little more on that from, from what you said in the book? Yeah, um, it might be useful to, to say a little bit more about virtue in general. Mm -hmm. uh, according to Aristotle. Um, uh, and so according to Aristotle, each of us, each human being is capable of developing virtues. Uh, and these are going to be more or less settled states of our character. Uh, so uh, the, the sort of first example that Aristotle talks about in the Nicomachean Ethics is courage. And that's a, a, a good one. I think he does it because it's a very clear example. Um, you know, encourage, uh, maybe lots of people uh, are familiar with this idea that courage is the sort of midpoint between two extremes, right? If, if you go too far uh, sort of in terms of excess, then you be, you're, not, you're no longer courageous, but you've become rash, right? You're, you're do, trying to do too much or accomplish too much. And then if you go too far, well, then you have become cowardly, right? Too timid. So courage uh, is a way of kind of hitting this middle point when it comes to uh, acting in the face of fear. Uh, so for Aristotle, the paradigm of, the cour of courage is the courageous soldier in the army in particular, because um, it has to do with fears that you can confront. So my dad, for, for example, my dad was, is a retired uh, naval uh, seaman. And so I sometimes tease him about this. I say, you know, dad, uh, Aristotle didn't think that sailors could be courageous because in his day, 
you were pretty much, if you were a sailor, you were just subject to the elements. And maybe the most you could do is throw some cargo overboard and row for shore, you know, if, if the storms got bad. Um, but his point, and my dad was like, yeah, Aristotle obviously wasn't a sailor, <laughs> didn't, didn't know what he was talking about, right? So, um, but, uh, but the idea there is that um, the sailors, right, they can be sort of without fear, but they can't act in a way in the face of that fear to sort of bring about some good sort of resolution to that in a way that uh, a soldier, he thinks, on a battlefield in the midst of battle, right, uh, isn't going to necessarily be overwhelmed, but can actually take, as it were, concrete steps uh, to uh, to reach some some good outcome on the basis of of his courage. Um, so the general idea of virtue is that it's a settled state of your character uh, that aims towards bringing about something good, um, and so courage uh, is is a is a typical one. Now. Uh, phronesis is a little different mm -hmm. because according to Aristotle, the, the sort of excess, defect, middle point of view only applies to uh, what he calls virtues of character. But phronesis is a virtue of the mind or a virtue of the intellect. And he doesn't think of these in terms of excess, defect, or middle point. Um, but he does think of it as uh, sort of a settled state, right? So the person who uh, has good practical judgment, has the virtue of phronesis, is able to consistently uh, make good and wise decisions. Uh, phronesis is primarily about, like I said, you know, uh, making the right sort of decisions, mm -hmm. taking everything into account, um, and, and doing what the wise person would do. Um, so, uh, so phronesis is, like you said, it can, should really be a fundamental goal, right, of educators is to develop the, the practical wisdom uh, um, of their students. Now, one other thing Aristotle says about this that sort of makes it difficult to do this in a K-12 or even K-12 college sort of setting is that Aristotle says, um, teaching phronesis, teaching good judgment, is not the same as teaching geometry. Um, you can teach geometry to, you know, young students, um, although he doesn't necessarily think you, it's part of your curriculum, but you can teach geometry to students who don't have a lot of life experience. Mm. Uh, they can learn the proofs and the postulates and the theorems and the axioms and all of that. Um, but he doesn't think you can teach uh, phronesis or good decision making to students who don't have a lot of life experience. So one thing I say in the book is that um, I think maybe Aristotle thinks that phronesis really isn't fully developed until maybe your mid-20s at the soonest, uh, maybe even mid-30s uh, at the soonest. That's when your powers of good practical judgment uh, really come come to uh, sort of their highest uh, level of completion. And of course, we aren't going to have students going to school until they're 35, right? Um, although not even st students who go to PhD programs until they're 35, right? They're not there to, to develop their phronesis, right? They're there for other reasons. So, mm -hmm. 
So that, yeah, there is something to that in that you have to aim at something that you're you're not going to complete, but you can certainly set it up right and get it going in the right direction. Yeah. Right. I I think one of the one of the takeaways I felt with phronesis was that if you are helping the child to shape their will, to to make right choices when they're young, that that gives them the experience that they need for the phronesis to be developed. So I mean, I, I guess, and I guess that goes back. That goes back to the pedagogy, the foundation training and habit habits, and mm-hmm. that really is going to be a foundation to um, acquiring phronesis. Would that be correct? Yes, yes. So, with all of the virtues, um, phronesis included, it's going to be a gradual process. Uh, mm-hmm. It's going to involve learning by doing. Mm-hmm. Um, So you become courageous by practicing courageous actions, um, or at least by practicing actions that a courageous person would do. Uh, And likewise, for making good decisions and good choices, you you do that by practicing them uh, and thinking and considering uh, what people who are known to be wise and good at decision-making would do themselves. Um, So there's there's imitation involved there. Mm Um, in, oh, I have a tough decision in front of me. Uh, well, I, who, who's someone that I think is really wise and how would they handle this decision? Mm-hmm. That, I think, would be a very uh, Aristotelian way of, of going about things. That's good. Trey, do you have any questions or comments before I keep going? I have lots. Well, I like to go back to this, this word leisure for a minute. As some of you know, I teach middle school boys, and middle school boys love a good running joke. And I don't often play into those as their teacher. I'm sort of in a a separate space from their frivolity, let's say. But on occasion, when the joke includes me, and it's a good one, I'll I'll lean into it. And one of the running jokes of at least this, this current semester has been that Mr. Bailey is a true man of leisure. <laughs> and I guess I just said the word leisure so, so many times and, and gave examples of, of leisure uh, and leisure activities that they just decided to pin me with this, with this title. And, and so I've kind of leaned into it. And so I'll, I'll, I'll make comment every once in a while, uh, kind of enter and do my best, like Dos Equis, uh, most interesting man in the world impression and, and just be their <laughs> true man of leisure uh, <laughs> on occasion. But I'm glad that these boys are thinking about leisure and thinking about it in a way that, uh, well, it's not, it's oftentimes thought of as, you know, the equivalent of, of vacationing or, or, or even being lazy, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm, I'm glad that they're thinking about it in, 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 a, in a more traditional sense. And one of the ironies there, of course, is that, you know, the word uh, scole uh, is, is, means leisure, can be translated as leisure. And that's where we get the word school, which the boys are really confounded by because oftentimes they don't think of school as a leisure activity. And what you were saying about uh, preparing yourself and developing your character uh, in a way that you will be ready to uh, act in a certain way in your leisure time I think that's a really timely conversation 
uh, for students who are getting ready to go on summer break. But it also seems to be the case that you know, teachers should be thinking very carefully about how they can create opportunities for students to, to practice leisure in the, in, the, in the classroom. And in so doing, give them opportunities to not just learn certain things, but to be certain people. And in so doing, develop the habits that will ultimately lead to uh, good decision-making later in life when they're uh, confronted with with opportunities and challenges in their life. So I guess, <clears throat> having said all that, my question is, what do you think Aristotle would say about sort of our current approach to leisure? And perhaps, what do you think he would say about the way we approach ethics in, in our schools? Um, Adrian said something about the, what did you, what did you call it? I, I haven't heard the phrase before, the, the virtue of the month. Oh yeah, some classical schools have you know virtue is, of the month. This month we're focusing on courage, you know, or yeah. humility or whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the thing that that happens at some schools. And I, I, I tend to make uh, to me doing some doing that is just it's a progressive way of teaching because it's just another thing to check off the box, and that's not what classical education ought to be. And I think, you know, talking with Dr. Hartenberg about about what this what this really means, it, pointing back to the tradition, I like your question. What would Aristotle say to us today? Yeah. Yeah. So um, let me take a stab at the the question about leisure. Um, how, what would what would Aristotle think about the way that we do leisure? Well, I guess a lot of that would hang on what we mean by we, who's the we here? Because um, I think we do think of a certain class of people, a group of people um, who are sort of uh, have, I don't know, no concerns about money. And so just can do whatever they want. Um, and then there's, I think, the mo most people in at least America today, right? We we have jobs, or at least we're concerned about making money and, and making a living, providing for ourselves and our families, right? And so that's a sort of how we spend our leisure time is kind of maybe a different question, and even how we imagine that we ought to spend it. So I think, um, but maybe Aristotle would say sort of the same principle applies, that leisure is not just relaxation or uh, sometimes um, you, you, you'll hear the contrast with amusement. So mm -hmm. um, if you're familiar with Greek, you know that putting the ah in front of a word is a way of negating it, like on or in or non in, in English. So amusement is to literally, in a sense, be without the muses or mm -hmm. to be uh, without inspiration in some way. So he, he wouldn't think of, of leisure as simply amusement either uh, or relaxation. It's, it really is a fundamental uh, orientation about why you're doing what you're doing. So the key thing about any leisure activity, philosophy or music, those are Aristotle's uh, top two options, uh, is that you, you do those things, you engage in philosophical activity you engage in musical activity 
just for the sake of the philosophy or the music itself. Not so that you can get anything out of it, or not so that you can take what you have learned in those exercises or those activities to apply them to different sorts of fields, right? So why should you, uh, um, you know, engage or practice philosophy according to Aristotle? Well, for the sake of engaging and practicing and practicing philosophy, right? There's no sort of more to do other than that. And the same for music. Why should you listen to music? Why should children be taught music? For the sake of, of learning and appreciating music. Um, so sometimes, especially as someone, I, I direct a, a liberal arts program. So we're tempted to, well, why should students be studying these sort of very, in a way, abstract or disconnected sort of subjects? And there's a temptation to say, well, it's gonna teach them good reading skills so that they can write good emails or marketing copy or teaches them good writing skills so they can be a good judge. And those things might all be true, but I think if we lean into that too much, we really do miss the point of, say, liberal arts education or what Aristotle would call leisure activities. Uh, there isn't a point to them other than just simply doing them. Uh, and if you think, well, that's just a waste of time to, to philosophize like that or to, to listen and appreciate a joy music like that, Aristotle would say, well, you just haven't understood then uh, the value, right? The extremely high value of philosophizing or uh, mm. enjoying music. And maybe that's not your fault. Again, maybe all the people you know who are quote unquote philosophers are you know, people who can't take care of themselves or that sort of thing. So there might be sort of some, some work you have to do or we have to do in getting a proper understanding of philosophy as according to Aristotle, right? Just simply contemplating and coming to understand better the highest things in human experience. And among those, he would say, would be God, right? So to philosophize well is to contemplate to think about, to ponder, to ask questions about, mm -hmm. to discuss with other people uh, the nature of God and, and so forth. Um, so, so I think that, I don't know uh, if that answers the question about leisure and, it, and its approach, but it, it comes from a fundamentally different mindset of there are things that are useful for us. Mm -hmm. And in Aristotle's philosophy of education, right? These are things like learning to read, learning to write, learning to draw, uh, you know, good physical exercise, all of that stuff. So th those are useful things, um, but we do those sometimes for themselves, but usually so that we can do other things. But that's got to stop, that sort of chain of reasoning has to stop somewhere. Uh, and so when we get to things like music and philosophy, why do we do those things? Well, for, for the sake of those things themselves, not for the sake of something else. Right. And and I suppose, you know, in some sense, the idea of the elective is somewhat of a remnant of 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 thinking, well, these are good things and, and we should at least put them on the table for students to choose if if they would like to pursue it. And so sadly, things like music have been relegated to the the electives, right? Mm -hmm. It's there if you want it, or if you want to do something else. It's up to you. You can elect right. it. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, help us out here because we're, we're working with parents and teachers and students who are, you know, for, at, for really at no fault of their own, just coming with a lot of 
a lot of baggage, a lot of along of a, a lot of um, misplaced ideas about what school is is even for or what it's mm-hmm. all about. What 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 exactly are we doing here together? And so yeah. I just wonder what sort of advice would Aristotle say if he could speak into the lives of some of these teachers. Uh, or maybe speak through the teachers to their students. Perhaps that's a better way of thinking yeah. about it. Yeah. So I do think we have to be careful here because Aristotle is coming from uh, um, obviously a different culture, a different time period, uh, even in some ways a different class, uh, socioeconomic class, we would call it. Uh, so, for example, Aristotle, it doesn't seem like had to worry about working. And the the people that he's talking about educating, I think for the most part, they also don't have to worry a lot about, say, getting a job. Um, so uh, now I think, like, I, and I, I have a couple sections in the book, like trying to sort of translate what what we can take from Aristotle into a, a different sort of setting uh, than the one that he was familiar with. But I do think, um, especially in terms of uh, what we call elementary education or primary education, um, that the the goal of primary education should almost absolutely have no usefulness in mind in it, right? Um, now, we're, we're setting students up, right, to continue their education, right? So we do have kind of the future in mind, but um, like I mentioned, Aristotle's curriculum would strike, I think, most uh, educators today as really minimal, maybe even too much so. But he really thinks um, that uh, primary education should start about seven years old, which I gather is a little later than than we do here in in America and probably most Western systems. But uh, they should be, and they might have what sort of maybe some kind of preschool uh, um, uh, participation starting around five, but really not trying to learn in anything until they're seven. And then what they're being taught is reading, writing, drawing, uh, music education, uh, and uh, some some physical exercises. Uh, and so, you know, when you think about that and you compare that to sort of schools, uh, you know, it, and it kind of runs across you know, public schools, private schools, charter schools, classical schools, any kind of schools, I think we all face the temptation to do too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would say if there's one thing that Aristotle is reminding us, of, it's it's possible to not do so much in, especially in primary school. Um, and even through secondary school. Um, now, uh, there's another issue about Aristotle thinking that possibly it's not all totally clear in his um, in his writings, uh, but it seems like he's thinking of this mostly as education for boys, uh, but uh, girls uh, could be involved in this education as well. But he does say, you know, near the end of what we would call their high school experience, uh, it's almost all a kind of physical uh, uh, education. Um, and that seems to be preparing them to serve in the military. Mm-hmm. So again, a, a different culture, a different time period. Um, but uh, at the end of when they, as we would say, graduate from high school, um, they, according to what I can tell from Aristotle, they don't really, for example, 
uh, they, they don't really know a lot about science um, mm -hmm. or even the science of his day, right? Um, and now Aristotle himself was very interested in science, right? The father of biology and uh, reading his works on biology is really, really intriguing and interesting and something I would recommend. Um, but then again, I'm a philosophy professor and a bit of a nerd, so take that with a grain of salt. But uh, uh, but even things like mathematics, right? um, obviously Aristotle didn't have calculus, um, but th there's no indication in the program of education that he outlines that students really need to be concerned about mathematics. Yeah. Well, th this um, is probably the point in the in in the study of Aristotle where people probably just write him off and say, well this just isn't going to work for mm -hmm. what I need for my, my kid. And, mm -hmm. and I, I guess may, maybe this would be a good place to just mention that by and large scientists and, and mathematicians and, and people who operate sort of in, in those spheres, um, they tend to be really, really good with things. And I guess if I could say that the challenge that, that, that they often face is that they're really bad with people. <laughs> and I think what Aristotle would say is, first and foremost, we need to be really good human beings with That's ourselves right. and others. <laughs> and then we can be prepared to enter into these, these, uh, these other studies, uh, these sciences and, and whatnot. And, and I, think, I think this is where maybe Charlotte Mason can help us out because Although um, she was writing at a different time and different place, she was drawing from the wisdom of Aristotle and, and, and bringing it to uh, perhaps a larger audience. Yeah, I, I was very struck with, well, one, for one thing, I was very excited that you mentioned Charlotte Mason towards the end of the book. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, chapter five um, called Aristotelian Pedagogies, like so much of it, was very much is very much in um in in line with charlotte mason's pedagogy um in habit training instruction um, mimetic learning i i see this as being such a, a beautiful um approach especially for k-8 for young children and i was seeing from what from what you said in in here and unpacking aristotelian pedagogy i was seeing very good connections to Charlotte Mason. Um, where do you see connections between um, Charlotte Mason and perhaps Aristotle, where she might have drawn from him? Um, yeah, so I appreciate that connection. And I would say my introduction to Charlotte Mason uh, came through my wife, uh, Jennifer, and uh, we homeschool our kids. And she's my wife has been busy developing a a homeschool uh, collaborative program here in Houston. It's called the Blue Bonnet Home Scholars Collaborative. It's very Charlotte Mason, uh, elements of forest school and things like that. And, and trying to take the best of, of that in the classical approach. Um, so I don't know a, a sort of as much about Charlotte Mason as I, I at least think I do about Aristotle. So I'll preface my, my statements with that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think there is a sense, you know, so one thing that Aristotle emphasizes is learning by doing. Mm -hmm. um, and and I know that resonates with a lot of Charlotte Mason, uh, her teaching. Uh, Mason, from what I can tell, you know, I'm not a scholar on her, 
Um, but just sort of reading through her writings, uh, she is uh, seems to have uh, be pretty familiar with Aristotle. Um, uh, she at least name drops him in a number of uh, places around the six volumes of her philosophy of education work. Um, so, um, yeah, so she's familiar and, and there is, I think, a sense in which the idea of leisure as well, I, mm -hmm. I don't know if, if Mason puts it in these terms, right, but uh, maybe you would know this better than I, but the idea that education is for something other than just being a useful person, right? but that there's something valuable about individuals themselves mm -hmm. uh, and that the education has to respect this uh, and sort of begin from this as an axiom almost. Um, so that, because if we don't, um, uh, maybe, uh, maybe this, this example might help. So one thing that Aristotle uh, sort of, I would say harps on might be a bit too strong, but he, he points out, for example, uh, most people are familiar with the, the Greek city-state Sparta right, mm -hmm. maybe from various movies or just depictions or just knowing that there are sports teams named Spartans, right? <laughs> uh, so, but Aristotle is very critical of the education, uh, the educational system in Sparta. Uh, and his criticism is mainly that Spartans wanted to educate their students to be courageous. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, courageous above all else so that they could develop good soldiers. Um, and Aristotle says this is not this was not a good thing um, because the the highest goal, the highest end of a human being is not to be courageous. Right? The highest end of a human being is, you know, to put it in his way, is is philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. Is uh, is contemplation of the highest things um, is in a way just being educated, uh, developing one's own. Uh, intellectual gifts, but also the the virtues of character. And the problem that Sparta had was they just singled out one virtue, and they mm -hmm. tried to do that. And Aristotle makes a point in the politics, uh, where he says, and in fact, just trying to aim at this one virtue of courage uh, means Sparta didn't even get that at all, right? They They couldn't educate their students for courage, what they ended up educating them to do was a kind of cruelty. Um, they, so even just aiming at a virtue or setting out one virtue as above all the others, Aristotle thinks is a bad idea. So it's, it's got to be holistic would mm -hmm. be a, a word and a, and a description that I think would be appropriate of Aristotle. Um, he, he does have the view uh, that um, all of the virtues uh, you sort of come together. It's a package deal. Yeah. And until and you know, that's okay. Uh, he's pretty committed to this. At least he seems to be. He'll, he says things that imply until you get all of the virtues, you don't exactly have any of them. Um, so you kind of work up to all of them gradually, and then maybe you can't specify the exact point, but uh, over a certain period. The, all of the virtues kind of emerged together through focus and practice and attention to all of them. Mm -hmm. So, so I think that holism, that not focusing on just this one or that one, 
especially phronesis, and also just realizing that. Um, so I think one of the things that sort of stood out to me most, uh, maybe sort of the new idea I had while reading this book or, or writing this book was, um, uh, we, as teachers, even as college professors, um, I shouldn't assume that my students are going to be finished products when when they when they leave my school. Uh, so uh, graduating 18 year olds, 17 or 18 year olds out of the 12th grade, uh, we should not assume students are finished products. I mean, I mean, Aristotle would say they, they've got, you know, they're halfway there even, right? Uh, and so they might not have formal education for the next 18 years, but they'll, they'll get informal education. And, and that should be sort of a good kind of informal education, but they're, they're not gonna be done when they leave our schools. And so I, I wonder if sometimes teachers and schools put too much on themselves. Like right. we, we've got to, we've got to sort of, we're like a finishing school in a mm -hmm. way, right? We've got to polish them off and send them out into the world just perfect. And we, no, that's that's not that that shouldn't be our mindset. That's really a great point. Yeah, I I saw a lot, I did see a lot of other things, connections to Charlotte Mason. Um, one of them I saw was um, you had mentioned in the pedagogy that children first ought to encounter the good and the beautiful. And mm -hmm. um, you talked about story-based learning uh, that are mm -hmm. supervised stories for children to help them develop good habits and thoughts about beautiful things. Uh, physical development, including good speech, not exposing children to twaddle and shameful speech. And right. then, yeah. the, and even the delayed formal schooling, not starting till the age of seven. And all of this, I was like, oh, this is very compatible with Charlotte Mason. And and um, it was, it, it brought quite, a lot of joy to my heart. <laughs> um, and I, I feel that it's an important message for classical schools that are um, especially wanting to bring in some of the Charlotte Mason elements um, that this, I think this book would be very useful for, for them to see this pedagogy and, and be able to say, oh, it's Aristotelian pedagogy is, is very similar to Charlotte Mason. It's mm -hmm. encouraging, I think, uh, especially for people maybe who perhaps think of Charlotte Mason as just being a little nature study unschooling way of of learning, but yet at the same time, I hear you saying Aristotelian is is that leisurely, almost unschooling, not not really yeah. unschooling, but in the informal informal approach of enjoying enjoying life, but yet at the same time, there does need to be an intentional direction towards the good and the beautiful. So it's not as unschooling as perhaps people think. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Dr. Hartenberg, I, I liked what you said about not thinking of students as finished products. And mm -hmm. I wonder too, if we should not consider Aristotle and his contributions to philosophy and ethics as a finished product. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could speak to the ongoing conversation and the development of Aristotelian thought, uh, specifically through through the church, and maybe speak to some of our Christian educators, um, how can they go back and, and glean good things from Aristotle, and then how can they sort of follow the, the conversation up into the present? Yeah, um, 
Thanks. I, I appreciate that question. So I do have a chapter in the book uh, tracing a, a very brief history of Aristotle's influence on education from his day to more or less the present day. Um, uh, and one thing I would say is that if you are a little skeptical, uh, uh, or it, it say if there's a, a Christian homeschooler who's a little skeptical about taking their cues from Aristotle, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, and in fact, uh, so, sometimes people get the, the mistaken idea that sort of uh, you start with Aristotle in ancient Greece, and he was just sort of the influence in philosophy and maybe even in theology all the way up through, you know, the Middle Ages or the medieval or maybe the, a little later into the Renaissance. And, and then something happened to him, and now he's kind of back on the scene a little bit. But that's actually not the case. So, And, and Aristotle himself long dead, but uh, in the Middle Ages, um, at first, when, when his writings re-emerged, uh, they had been in a kind of hibernation over in the, the eastern part of civilization in Byzantium, in Constantinople, Syria, those, those uh, uh, Arabia. Um, but when his works started to find their way back, um, uh, they were not just met with open arms, um, because it was difficult to know what, how to integrate uh, Aristotle into uh, even just the educational system uh, that had been uh, developed and maintained in the European West uh, for about a, you know at least 800 years or so. Um, so I would say if, if you're skeptical about taking your cues from Aristotle, okay, right? You can sort of join the club of people uh, throughout history, Christians throughout history, who, who have been skeptical about that. Um, I would say, though, don't let that keep you from reading, uh, especially the Nicomachean Ethics and, and maybe the politics, um, uh, but don't let that keep you from reading his works and thinking about what is good in there to take from them. Um, and then because, you know, eventually, I would say, uh, Aristotle uh, was uh, embraced by um, one of the sort of more, more influential uh, theologians of the Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas. Uh, now that wasn't itself at the time without controversy, right? Uh, and and Aquinas's works got sort of uh, got him in trouble, and Aristotle got banned, and that sort of thing. But eventually, uh, the Catholic Church, in particular, said, "No, no, no! Thomas is our guy, and and so <laughs> Aristotle, he can be our guy too." Um, and we have a kind of more sort of peaceable uh, version of, of uh, Thomas and, and Aristotle uh, in Catholic theology today. Um, so, you know, th that history of acceptance wasn't a, just a straightforward one. Um, I think a good lesson in all of this is just that there are no silver bullet answers, right? Um, you can't just say, well, I'm this and there are no problems with that. And if I just do this, then everything will be perfect, right? Even for Charlotte Mason, right? She, she has her blind spots um, and uh, things that don't necessarily apply to our situation. And I think, you know, um, for example, one of the things my wife likes to remind me of is that Charlotte Mason was very much in favor of studying uh, what the best educational practices were 
and and finding that out and not just coming to this as a well I've got it all figured out and now we just have to implement my ideas it's like well no let's let's see what works and what doesn't work mm -hmm. and and so you know if if there's something in her ideas or Aristotle's ideas that we think well that that doesn't work okay well can you leave that out and then can, can right. you make uh, what's good with that yeah. right take that which is beautiful and good and true from it and, mm -hmm. and make the mm -hmm. best of it. I want to close before we ask you our closing question. I want to spoiler spoiler alert, read the last paragraph of your book to everyone, mm. because I loved this last paragraph. And since it's not fiction, it's not really giving away, you know, a plot ending. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he says, when given its central place in education, the subject of friendship has a way of revealing inadequate philosophies of education which often are preoccupied with the formal education of children and young adults. However, the education that takes place up to the age of 21 is, from a certain point of view, only preparation for the education that takes place informally after that, through music, friendship, and if all goes well, philosophy. Those who educate in formal settings should not presume that they are putting the finishing touches on their students. As much as possible in this world full of exile and solitude, teachers should seek to make their students ready to develop genuine friendships. For only fully educated friends with phrenesis as their ally will conquer illiberality and ignorance. Bravo. <laughs> oh, I you. love thank that you. ending. I, yes, teaching our children how to love is. Mm -hmm. The goal of education yeah to love to love everything and everyone and 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 you know enjoy enjoy the the beauty the beauty that we have before us so this was wonderful okay we always ask our guest uh to answer one of two questions you can choose one whichever one you want uh the first option is what is a quote from a book that has had a huge impact on you and the second option is, what book do you wish you had read sooner in your life? Hmm. Well, um, I think it would be really hard to answer the second one, because I think that when you think about that, the books that we meet when we meet them seem to have an influence on us because we're ready for them. So, you know, maybe I have a, a book that I really like or I think is good. Would it have done me any better to have met that earlier? I don't know if I'd be ready or prepared or, you know, that sort of thing to 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 appreciate the book then. So the first one though, so I think I can definitely take a stab at this. And it's just a short snippet from uh, Plato's Republic. Um, and uh, 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 Socrates says uh, that no forced study abides in the soul. Um, and I think what he's saying there is, well, in contrast to forced physical uh, uh, education, right? Someone can force me to do push-ups, and that will get—I'll get stronger, regardless of whether I like it or not, right? If they just force me to do the push-ups, but the soul—that sort of education—it's not like that. You can't force people to learn, um, and I think that's a, that's a. I think one of maybe the biggest challenges of educators is how can we not force students to learn, but make make knowledge, make wisdom attractive to them, 
so that they will learn on their own. But then at the same time, not just let them do whatever they want. Um, so finding that the sort of how to do that and and uh, sort of maintain, help them still be disciplined in mm. in their desires and so forth. Uh, but no forced study abides in the soul. That's always been a kind of guiding principle for me and in, in my my own teaching. I hope at least. Oh, that was a good one. In fact, that makes me think about how important it is for teachers and parents to be sure to set beauty beauty before their children because beauty draws us to engage, be engaged mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. a joy. Mm -hmm. It's an invitation. And if, if, if we make education an invitation, then perhaps we'll win their hearts. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Not a sure thing, but maybe that's the best we can do. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for this interview. It was great. And I encourage our listeners to get a copy of your book. I really enjoyed it. And I've enjoyed this conversation. And I definitely think we could have talked for two or three more hours and gotten into the depths of friendship and, and uh, happiness. And, but I think the readers can just can, uh, the listeners can go get the book and read it. And enjoy it. Thanks very much. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, it's, it's always gratifying as an author to have such uh, enthusiastic readers as yourself. And, Thank and hopefully you. others will enjoy it and find it useful. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much for listening. We invite you to experience the art of teaching through interactive learning communities at our Patreon page. Visit patreon.com forward slash classical education. Also, be sure to join the conversation on our Facebook community at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. We are a listener-supported podcast, so your support makes this podcast possible. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once wrote, Well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be, in a few words, this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know, best of all, what it is to behave under it as in the presence of a Father who is in heaven.